You're listening to the James Faith in Jesus Work Series, preached by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn to James chapter 2. We've been in the series of James for a few months now, and I'm excited that I've, I've, I feel like the last few weeks I've been able to go like every Sunday night which has been through the summer, it was just on and off and lots of things going on. And so I feel like I finally get to string together a coherent thought through a few messages. So hopefully you feel that way after I'm done tonight as well. But the title of the message tonight is Impartiality in a Partial World. And I want to begin by thanking Pastor for the awesome introduction. His sermon this morning just was a wonderful introduction. It was lengthy for an introduction, I'd say, but it was right on point. So I appreciate it. I'm not exactly sure how he got from... First Kings to partiality, but he did. And the truth is, as he went through the wisdom of God and the wisdom of God in the church and how that reflects the world and what that looks like, it, it really made complete sense. And I love how God brought that together with the verses we're at in the book of James tonight. Honestly, Pastor and I never get together. We never talk about like, hey, I'm, I'm doing this. What are you going to do so it matches, so it looks like we're being led by the Spirit? It, it really just happens. And I don't know how that happens, <laughs> the Spirit, but it's a wonderful thing when it does. So tonight, I, find, I kind of feel like this is part two of a play. But unfortunately, all of the, the fireworks were in the first half of the play. And so we're, we're going to be in James chapter 1. And James speaks about the subject of partiality within the body of Christ as well. So that's the subject we're going to be diving into. But I want you to, to go back and re-listen to this morning. And you'll get, like, the fire. Okay? So that's James chapter 1. Imagine if, at the beginning of this sermon, what I did is I began dividing up the congregation. And so what we did is we said, well, there's some really nice chairs up front here, so I want every person in this room that makes 60 grand and more per year to come sit up here at the front in the nice, cozy chairs. If you make between 30 and 40, you can find a seat somewhere in the middle, but make sure to leave just a little bit of space, just so we're not getting confused. All right, so we've got the, the rich people really up front, and we've got kind of 30 to 40 grand kind of in the middle there. And if you make less than 30, you're welcome to leave if you want. If you don't want to leave, just find a spot at the back, or maybe you can sit down on the ground at the side or something. Just, just make sure you stay out of our vision, all right? I mean, that would absolutely sound crazy. And if somebody did that, we would believe ourselves to be in some kind of social experiment, like, like this is going to be on YouTube eventually, and they're just trying to see what your reaction is like. If we were dismissing for the picnic and we dismissed by race, what would you think? It'd be insane, right? Or if we handed out parts in the Christmas play coming up based on your child's or your level of education. If you were really educated, your kid gets the best part because they're probably the most likely to do a good job at it. Can you imagine if, if the church was like that? It would seem absolutely insane. And in our society today, that would be absurd. But here's a crazy thought. That back during this time, that wouldn't be crazy. In fact, back throughout much of human history, in most cultures, that idea wouldn't be a weird idea. In many places, that would be expected. The rich obviously get the best seat. Those who are in the middle class, they can, they can find a seat somewhere in the middle. And if you're poor, then just stay out of our way. 
Obviously, the rich go first. They probably bought the food. They funded it. I mean, obviously, their kids get the best opportunities because, right? This is, this is how much of society has been run. It seems absurd to us, but it is the fact of human history. And if that's true of the past, we must understand that that's true of the past because it's in us now. Because that is a part of what it means to be a human being. We always have this desire to put ourselves and who we are above others and to find a way to make others subservient to us. As we come to this study tonight, we should not ask how God could have used this text to convict a man like John Newton. Right? We shouldn't ask how God could have used this text in the past in those societies. As we come to the text tonight, our question must be, what does God want me to learn? What does God want us as a church to improve upon so that in our church family we can do a better job? And what's wonderful about this passage is that there are some areas that I think our church is doing a good job. I think that this is something that is emphasized often, both from the pulpit and from our people. And I think that is a great thing. But we still should come to the text saying, Lord, help me in this area. If there's something that I need to change, if there's an area I should work on, please reveal that to me. And with that as our prayer, let's go to the text. James chapter 2 will be in verses 1 to 7. I think it will serve us well to remember that James has just taught us about pure religion that is undefiled before God. And when James was writing this letter, he did not have chapter divisions. So he wasn't coming to the end of this thought and then starting a brand new thought. This is kind of an ongoing thought of James, that pure religion looks like both a relationship with God that is real, that is fueled by this faith and this love for the Christ who died for us, that there is a relationship involved, but also that there is a religion involved, meaning that there are actions that are taken because of the relationship, that our faith is not without works. And so pure religion looks like controlling your tongue. It's a difficult thing to do. We do it because God calls us to do it. We do it because that's, that reflects his character. It looks like us looking to those who are most vulnerable in society and trying to take care of them. Right? I mean, widows and orphans, those, that's the, the ones that are given to us, but I think we can expand that to all those who are vulnerable in society. The church ought to be stepping up to care for in some way or another. That is pure religion. Why? Because God is the God of the fatherless and the widows. Because he is the God who adopts children into his family. Because that's his character. That pure religion looks like those who are holy, who are pure, who are trying to be unspotted by the the world. And that is something that, again, reflects the purity and the holiness of God. And so God calls us people to be like So that's his thought, right? He's talking about how you live out your faith. And now in James chapter 2, he, be, he continues with the same thought. James 2 verse 1. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. Much of James' purpose can be found in this verse. He's teaching us how to have the faith, or how to hold the faith of the Lord Jesus, the Lord of glory. And so he wants us to know that the inward faith that we have affects our outward actions. And so it's not just 
you have the faith as in like you got saved and you put your faith and now that's a done deal and so faith is just a part of who you are now. He's saying this is how you have it. This is how you continually walk in that faith from day to day. That's what he's teaching us for this entire book and certainly that's what he's teaching us in this point that we're getting to tonight. The command here could not be clear. Do not hold that faith with respect of persons. But look at how emphatic it is. He's not saying that, well, listen, if you're a Christian, then um, here's a list of ten things you should do, and one of the things you should do is try and, try and be less partial. You know, like, partiality is just not, it's not the best thing, and so do a little bit less of the whole, like, prejudice and the favoritism. That's, that's, that's a good thing to avoid when possible. What he's saying here is that faith in Jesus Christ does not coincide with respect of persons. It doesn't, it, it's not supposed to coexist with. The, those two things are at odds, right? They don't fit together in any way, shape, or form. And so you cannot justify having faith in Jesus Christ and showing partiality. Does that mean that all Christians forever have never shown any partiality? No, absolutely not. We should be honest about our history, and there are a lot of times where the church falls on the wrong side of social issues. There are many times throughout our history, and maybe even today, where the church is just not, it's not placing the emphasis here where God does. There are many times where we could step up and do a better job in this area. However, what James is saying is, if you call yourself a Christian and you want to live out your faith, then don't ever try to justify your partiality by your faith. Because those two things, they don't work. I don't care if you act like they do. I don't care if you say that they do. Very clearly here in the Bible, they do not. No Christian has ever prejudged another based on their economic status, educational status, their race, or their upbringing because the Bible taught them to. They did that because they're sinful. They did that because the flesh is still inside of them. And so now James gives us an example that would be far too familiar for his audience. As we read this example, there are times that we read the Bible and I think we think, yeah, that's crazy. How could they do that, right? And so we're going to read this and we're going to say that, that, that is kind of, it's kind of crazy. But I want us to envision what it would look like if this, these two different people walked into our church, okay? For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel... And there come also a poor man in vile raiment, and you have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit under my footstool. Are you not then partial in yourselves, and become judges of evil thoughts? So here's our scenario. Two men walk through the door. The one's got nice clothing, right? He's well-groomed, clean, smells of cologne. You can just tell by the way this man walks that he's got some confidence, and he's doing well for himself. When he opens his mouth, the words flow, right? He's eloquent, he's charming, he's just this this sharp-looking dude. And then behind him walks in someone else. And this person has more trouble looking you in the eye, right? They they tend to, to look down or look away. This person is maybe a little bit self-conscious of what they're wearing because they know that what they're wearing is not really suitable for church, right? 
Maybe it's the cleanest shirt they had, but it's still not all that clean. And they smell a little bit. Maybe they smell of smoke, maybe smell of booze, maybe they smell of just not having showered for a while. And these two guys walk into the church, and you talk to the one, and they're charming, and they're happy, and they're excited to be there. And you talk to the other, and it's almost like they, they, they want to dismiss you quickly because they're not really sure about this place, they're not really sure about this conversation, and they, they just kind of want to, I mean, they're here, but they don't want to go unnoticed. How do we treat those two people? We might not say to the one guy, hey, look at I get the best spot for you. Come on up and I'll, I'll show you. I mean, we'd probably tell them the best spot is back. But it, I, we, we wouldn't like pull out this beautiful chair off the platform and sit it down there and be like, hey, you're rich, so you get this chair. We wouldn't do that. And we probably wouldn't say, hey, um, you're poor, and so why don't you like become my footstool? Like, just sit, sit down here on the ground in front of my feet or stand at the back. We, obviously, I'd be crazy to do that. But would we have an attitude that back 2,000 years ago might have considered doing that? Would we have had an attitude that for some reason or another, this rich man is of more importance than the poor man that came in? That, that we should be more um, enthusiastic about our evangelism of this person because they would add to our, to our body. They'd add to our church. They've got something to offer, you know? Would we go after the one guy and be sure to show them Christian love and, if possible, just avoid the other one? I mean, we wouldn't be rude. We wouldn't, we wouldn't tell them to, to, to leave or anything like that. But maybe we would just avoid the conversation. You know, let somebody else talk to them. I wonder if that's still true. If maybe some of us would still do that avoidance game. There's a song that's written... Um, by Todd Agnew, and it's called My Jesus. And he says, My Jesus would never be accepted in my church. The blood and dirt on his feet might stain the carpet. And he goes on to talk about how Jesus was the one who was loving the poor and the needy, and he was going out and, and getting into the messiness of people's lives. And to picture that Jesus walking into church with dirty feet and what, what would our reaction be? Now, I think he's, he's probably saying my Jesus would not be accepted in my church as like a... a Part like he probably doesn't believe that it's that bad. He's making, he's pushing it to the extreme to make a point. But at the but at the same time, you wonder how much do we look like Jesus in the way that we treat others? I mean, how much do we love those like Christ loved them? Christ confirmed that he loves the poor and the needy over and over and over again in his ministry. He confirmed it with the rich man when he said that it was almost impossible for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. With God, all things are possible. This was a shock to all of the disciples. Do you know why it was? Because when the disciples looked at people and they saw a rich man, what they saw was somebody who was blessed by God. What they saw was somebody who was deserving of their favor because they had received God's favor and they weren't looking at things the right way. And what Jesus was trying to teach them is that you can't judge a person's, whether or not they're being blessed by God or how much God loves them based on what they have. And and so this rich man might have had all the things in this world, but he had nothing for the world to come. He confronted this thought of partiality that was so rampant in his day when he purposely went through Samaria to speak to a Samaritan woman. Isn't that crazy? 
talking to the Samaritans, let alone a Samaritan woman. I mean, Pastor shared with us today, they, they, they go all the way around. Can you imagine being like, well, I've got to drive to California, but I really don't like the, the middle, what do you call the middle of the U.S., the, the Midwest? And so I'm just going to go through Alaska. <laughs> and that'd, that'd be crazy, right? Um, add four days of driving. That's what they did. And yet Christ goes to this woman of Samaria, and she can't believe he's talking to her, but he loves her, and she's a sinner, and he loves her. He confronted this thought when he touched the leper and made him clean in Mark chapter 1. I mean, lepers were to be avoided for good reason, too. They They could get you sick, right? So what do you do? When you see a leper, you pick up some stones just in case they try and get close. You go to the other side of the street, And Christ doesn't just from a distance say, be thou clean. He goes up to the leper. He gets at his level. He touches him. Right? He shows this kind of physical affection. And then he says, be thou clean. He confronted this thought when he allowed the sinful woman to come into the midst of him while he's sitting in a nice house with a bunch of very professional-looking religious leaders. And she comes in. And she's weeping, and she, she anoints his feet with oil, and she uses her, her hair to wash his feet, and he shows everybody there where his priorities lie. He doesn't care that they're rich. He doesn't care that they're religious or that, they're, that they have some kind of position. He cares that this woman is the only one who is broken. This is the only one who knows that she needs a physician. And so he loves her. We could give examples of the lack of prejudice that Christ demonstrated, and we could be here for days. I mean, if we went through the Gospels, we would see over and over again that this was the attitude of Christ. I hope we don't miss that. The vast majority of his ministry was to the poor and the needy and the lame and the the struggling, the suffering. Now, it doesn't mean he didn't love rich people. He did. It doesn't mean that, that rich people are automatically not, but riches are certainly not a sign of God's blessing. And they, they can be a hindrance to growth if we're not careful. James says, when you treat a person according to their status, you have become a judge of evil thoughts. You've determined their value by their outward appearance. We do this often. We become very good at looking people up and down and putting them in a category. When somebody walks in, we already know what kind of person they are. We already know how to act toward them. And that's a problem. We look at their weight, we look at their cleanliness, we look at their smell, we look at their lifestyle, and we we categorize them in our minds. So, the question that we might ask is, does this mean that we should never show respect or honor toward another person? If we're not supposed to show respect, respective persons, and here's the example given, does that mean it's a bad idea to ever show honor to someone? Well, that's, that's a good question. Romans chapter 13, verse 7, we are told to render, therefore, to all their dues, honor to whom honor. And the context is speaking about the government. There are people who have been put into leadership positions by God who are to be honored. Okay? Kids, Miles, pay attention. Kids, this is your parents. There's a special kind of honor that you give to them that you don't give to everyone. Right? 
all of us, this is, these are those who are older than us. We should give a special kind of honor to the elderly among us. Okay? What he's saying here is not that all honor is bad. What he's saying here is that placing honor upon a person simply because of their outward appearance and simply because of their wealth is, is bad. It's wrong. Okay? There are times that we honor those who are part of the police force or the firefighters or, or soldiers. And I think that's a great thing. Thank them for the service that they give. We don't honor people just simply because they've got lots. Well, what he's saying is wealth is not in and of itself a reason to honor man. Verse number five. Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? So now James, in continuing his argument, continuing trying to convince these people not to show partiality, he says, guys, look at God. Look at his example. What is he like? Don't you see that God has chosen the poor of this world who are rich in faith? Um, As he says that, even that thought would send shockwaves through the Jewish mind. right? Because they're so used to thinking that Blessing, material blessing, equates to God's blessing. He says that's not the case. God has chosen the poor, the base, the fools. 1 Corinthians 1 makes this abundantly clear. God has not chosen many who are rich and wise and wealthy. That's that's not the way that God chooses. He chooses the base, the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. What that means is that God is a friend of sinners. God is a friend of those who are less than others in our minds. And so when we see someone walk through our doors who is poor, who is needy, who is struggling in some way, our thought should not be, they don't have as much to offer. Our first thought should be, here is the chance to be like Christ. Here's a chance to show special love to somebody who is poor and needy. Because that's exactly what It seems as Christ did. Um, So what did these people have? They didn't have money. They didn't have status. They didn't have the right race. They didn't have some of those other things going for them. What did they have? They had faith. They had a love for him. And do you know what that faith and that love for him meant? It meant that they were heirs of the kingdom. Now, if we were actually able to step back and for a moment lose our, our temporal perspective that we live off of all the time, right? We, I mean, we've lived in this life and so this is all we know, but we are called in the Bible to have an eternal perspective and so we do everything we can to try to have that eternal perspective. But if we were able to shed our earthly perspective and truly think about what it looks like from this point to eternity, what a man's life is worth and what kind of value that person has, if we could see that those who come in and have faith and love for Christ, how much richer they are than the greatest billionaire who's ever lived. I mean, really, they're heirs of the kingdom of God. So these people will be able to eat from a silver spoon for a few years and maybe order the really nice steak. I go to a restaurant and sometimes I'm like, I really want the big one, <laughs> right? I always want the, whatever, the, I don't know, it's 12 ounce, it's 18 ounce, 36 ounce, I'll take the 36 ounce, right? That's a big steak. Um, but that's, so what? So you get to get fat eating nice food, right? 
so, so your body parts get to sit on nicer material. And then what? And here we have people who, they're poor, they're sick, they're struggling, they're not of the right race, they don't have all the education, and they have wonderful faith in God, and they love him, and they are heirs of the kingdom, like joint heirs with Christ. Everything that's his is theirs. If we had the prince come to Chatham, um, Prince Charles come to Chatham, we would treat him with a lot of respect, right? When we think very highly of him. Why? Well, because he's a prince. He's not the queen. I mean, he's not, he's not royalty yet or officially in charge yet. But we just know because of what he's heir to, we should have honor toward him. Heirs of the kingdom, sons and daughters of God, right? Princes and princesses. It doesn't get better than that. And so he's trying to change the way we look at these people. We shouldn't see them that way. We should see them as children of God, heirs of the kingdom. Verse number six, he confronts them with where, the way that they're acting. He says, but you have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do they not blaspheme that worthy name by which you are called? He says, guys, what are you doing? You're being so kind to these rich people who are coming in here, and you don't realize that the the oppression that you're experiencing in your life is because of them. They're the ones that are are dragging you down. They're the ones that are using you. They're the ones that are making your life, this side of heaven, miserable. They're taking you into court. They're, They're trying to take your money. They're charging this high interest. I mean, they're doing all these things that make your life difficult. And yet they come into your church, and you want to treat them like they're royalty? What are you doing? They, not only that, they're blaspheming the worthy name by which you are called. In other words, they're, they're slandering the name of God. Right? Christ, Jesus, was born in a stable, in a manger. He was born to a poor carpenter and to a young teenage girl. He, he lived the life of a poor carpenter. He never experienced wealth. In fact, the Bible says the Son of Man doesn't have a place to lay his head. And then he goes and he dies as a criminal. And the wealthy in society look at this man and they think he's a joke. And he's saying, the guy who's looking at Christ saying, they're worshiping this this criminal, this one who's poor, who was slain on a cross. They think you're a joke. And they're going to walk into your church and you're going to roll out the red carpet. You see James is being pretty persuasive. I mean, I feel like it'd be hard to listen to what he's saying and say, yeah, no, it really makes sense that when somebody rich comes in, we're being this kind to them. It doesn't make any sense. And James, at this point, is only halfway through his discussion on the subject. Um, he's going to be speaking about our shared status as sinners, and he's going to be speaking about the demands of the royal law on our lives. So we'll get to those things next time. Probably happy to hear that. But for now, I want to circle back to James chapter 2, verse 1. And I want to discuss why this responsibility is of the utmost importance to the believer. What's the principle that's guiding the way we're supposed to think about this and then many other things? He says, Do not hold the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. You notice that he took the time not just to say the faith of Jesus or faith, to say the Lord of glory. And it's interesting that he did that. He exalts Christ above everything else. So the foundation for this command is the person of Christ. 
it's not specific to all faith, because it's very possible to have a lot of different faiths without, and still maintain respective persons, right? In fact, I think if you were to look at every other world religion and you were to say, well, what, what does their faith entail? At some point, it entails having respect of persons, having partiality toward those who are further along, right? And here he says, no, that's, that's really not what it's about. He said, this command is about Christ. Christ was both poor and rich. He's the king of kings, and he was born in a manger. He has the throne in heaven. He rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, both poor and rich. And so glory here, when it's speaking of Christ, is, I don't think it's a measure of his wealth. When it's saying that, that have not the faith of the Lord, Christ, the Lord of glory, it's not saying the Lord who is so rich, like, like somehow because he's rich, we shouldn't care about rich people. That's not what he's saying. I think what he's doing is he's pointing us to Christ and pointing us to his glory because his glory is more a reflection of his character and not the fact that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He does own the cattle on a thousand hills, but that doesn't really matter. Um, In Exodus chapter 33, Moses is speaking with God. It's just an incredible scene there. But in verse 18, Moses looks to God and he says, "Um, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. So can you imagine talking to God and saying, God, I want to see what your glory looks like. And we would all wonder what exactly that's going to look like. And, and we might imagine this incredible display of, I mean, just fantastic, out of this world. You cannot, you cannot believe how impressive this display of glory is, right? Only the richest of the rich could ever do something that amazing, right? Or Disney, which is probably the same thing, richest of the rich. This is what he says in verse 19. He said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee. It's not, I mean, his glory and his goodness are are wrapped up together in one. I will make all my goodness pass before thee. I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee. And his name is synonymous not with just we named him Charlie. It's like his name is who he is, right? He is the I am. He is the provider. He is all these things, and that's why he's called those things. And so he is going to make his character, the name of the Lord, pass before him. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy upon whom I will show mercy. So the glory of of the Lord is not what he owns. It's not how rich he is. It is that he is good and gracious and merciful. That's, I mean, that's, that's the glory of the Lord that is demonstrated to Moses when Moses asked to see his glory. So when he says, don't hold the faith of Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respective persons, what he's saying is, you can't have faith in a, in a Christ who is of that character and at the same time show partiality. There's no partiality in Christ. And the law says that, right? The Old Testament law, it, it says not to be partial. The Proverbs say that on a couple of occasions. The New Testament makes it abundantly clear on many occasions that God is not a respecter of persons. So, the reason we should never show partiality is not just because God has has randomly decided that it's wrong to do so. The reason is because this is who he is. It's his character that matters. And he's calling his church, his people, to reflect his character. So forget about your reasons, forget about how you were brought up, 
Forget about the culture that you live in and what they say you're supposed to act like. This is who God is, so be like him. That's, that's James' argument here. Do not hold the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. Faith is not inconsistent with partiality, but faith in Christ is. Because of the character of Christ, because of the glory of Christ, we ought never be partial toward others. Here's the principle over and over and over. We should think of others as though you were seeing them through the eyes of Christ. How different we would act if we could do that. We are called to adopt the character and the attributes of Christ. And so let's be very practical for a moment before we close. Um, the problem of partiality, it hasn't gone away. I think we live in a society that has veiled it in some ways. Um, in, in other ways, we see it alive and well. Uh, I, I think we believe, as Canadians, we are somewhat separated from our American brothers, our big brother up there, and so down there. And, and so we kind of think, well, they're dealing with all of this racism problem, but here in Canada, we've got this whole thing covered. Um, I would stop us before we go too far down that path. I, I think what we have to realize is that the problem of partiality, it's not because America has the past that it has. It's, it's not because somebody made a wrong decision in some law at some point, or because the wrong statue was put up, or because the speech was given and, it, and what Trump said, or what somebody, one leader said was just a little bit too harsh toward one group of people instead of another group. It's not little things like that. The problem is human beings. The problem being is what's in the heart of every single person. So this is not just a problem that we can push aside to another country or another time. This is a problem that we should deal with in our own hearts because it's there. I'm glad that I can't think of a time that I've seen racism in our church. Now, I'm not saying it's never happened. I just can't remember seeing it. But if you're a believer who has ever had or ever has any kind of racist thoughts, get rid of them. I mean, quit it. That is, that is the, the opposite of the character of God. Okay? You could not... I mean, there's, there's a lot of things that are, that are satanic. That's one of them. If you are a person who ever looks at those who are less privileged than you, and you assume that they're just using the system, and they're, they're just, you know, you're paying all of these taxes all the time, and you're the hardworking, and you're the hero, and, and they're just... You know what? I mean, I'm not saying that the, the socialistic version of society that we have is the best. I don't know. I, I'm not here with any political intent at all. Um, but what we should do is we should see people as human beings. And so maybe they've struggled. They've got a sin nature just like you did, right? And just by, but by the grace of God, there go you or I. And so let's be really careful with the way we judge others. Um, and let's try to show the kind of love that Christ showed, where he seemed to actually search out people like that, to, to purposefully show them love. In a culture that didn't do that, and in doing that, he was ridiculed. Right? I mean, and others thought poorly of Christ because he was a friend of sinners. And that was a joke. That's what they called him. And I'm thankful for that. 
So we should live like we're sinners saved by grace. Pastor spent a lot of time this morning going through the list of um, different ways that we're partial toward others. Economic status, education, intelligence, background, race, appearance, political preferences. Um, I'm not going to go through that whole list again. But what I think we should do is we should be willing to examine our hearts in this area and say, God, is there any area where I'm showing partiality? Is there any way that I could show less favoritism and more love to be more like Christ? Um, The call today is to allow our faith to impact the way we think about and treat people who are not like us. It's very easy to love others that are just like you. But how do we love those who are very different from us? And the call of Scripture is to love them like Christ. 